Welcome. That was Roik Sop, the Swedish. Uh, it was a remix of the Swedish artist, I guess. Yes, by someone else. All right. Some, is that a band name, <laughs> or is no, it just someone it's, else? Uh, it's actually the Seven Lions remix. All right. All right. So we're here with two fans of Roik Sop instead of just one today. Uh, we're here with Darren Kaster of the Green Majority. Yo. And Nicole Dufresne of the Green Student. Hi. The Green Student? Yes. All right. Excellent. And so here, this is the first episode in which we actually talked to someone who also presented at Beyond Green. Obviously, Darren and I both did as well. Uh, in our ongoing effort to increase the conversation that exists throughout uh, the Beyond Green and really try to bring that to a uh, forefront, I guess. So uh, perhaps even um, if we could, uh, can we get you to start perhaps by just saying sort of what the idea of Beyond Green is for you? Because uh, that's something that we got into in the podcast before. So now that we have another guest that was actually there... Um, talk about what that concept is for you before we get into uh, your sure. actual project. Uh, so Beyond Green, um, to me, it means opening yourself up to new opportunities that go beyond what you may have already um, gotten involved with. So, I mean, I've always been interested in environmental media um, and like the, the marketing side and a lot of business stuff as well. But I, I wanted to attend Beyond Green because I wanted to see what else was out there. I mean, look at how many topics and speakers and workshops there were yeah so that's what it means to me cool yeah great uh so yeah so the point of this to sort of explain to introduce nicole and why she's here is that we want bringing speakers on to sort of say what their talk was about i guess and then also then we'll discuss we'll sort of act as your audience and then we'll see we'll get your opinion and then we'll go into a more podcast as general everyone's throwing out ideas framework so if you want to start sort of explaining what your uh, talk was about and then it will go from there Great. So uh, I did a workshop for thegreenstudent.ca, which is a website that was launched in 2010. It's kind of been a, a student-led project since then. Uh, every year there's a new editor. Um, it's usually their thesis project uh, for their undergraduate studies. And so what The Green Student does is it hosts um, the Canadian Post-Secondary Environmental Education Guide. So if you're thinking about post-secondary education and environmental studies, environmental science, engineering anything to do with the environment, uh, they'll have a profile of every school and program on there. Uh, the second thing that we do is we take in articles from students from all over Canada, from the U.S. as well, I've, from other countries too, and they write credible blog co posts about whatever issues they're interested in, and then it gets sent out to uh, a national audience. Cool. I, I'm assuming by credible you mean cited. Yes. <laughs> or yes. In, in more full detail, what what is the sort of the difference between the product that you're encouraging these students to produce and what else is out there? So to um, it kind of gives them a break from the typical like papers that you have to write for uh, your classes. The format is about 500 words, as much like different kinds of media that you can put in. A lot of visuals. There's a lot of people who do like photo essays. You can do video if you want. Um, 500 word maximum, keeping it fun, concise, but well cited. Cool. So. All right. Sweet. All right. So now your talk. Uh, it was about media and sensationalism, how media shapes environmental news stories, I believe. So you want to go on from that? Sure. So there's four main things that I was really trying to get across in the workshop. The first thing was media literacy and understanding what news articles are trying to get you to do, because there's always 
that underlying theme that's there. Mm. Um, the second thing was media activism. So taking your media literacy and being able to act upon it or, you know, spread uh, that message to your peers. Um, the other thing is looking at the state of environmental journalism today and that history as well. Um, and then the third or the fourth thing was sensationalism and how that ties in and the struggles that a lot of environmental journalists have to deal with right now with multiple pressures um, in that industry. Cool. So that, that's an excellent quick overview. Uh, now you, you have some questions, I believe. We said some questions you posed to you, the audience, and so we'll act as your audience for now and we can sort of jump off those. Sure. Uh, so the first question that I asked was, do you think that reporters and editors can or even should be totally objective hmm. Right. when they're uh, writing news? Uh, Darren, you want to take this first or should I? Uh, you go first. All right. So I will say I would love them to, but I, I don't think it's practical. And I think I understand why most aren't or none are to some extent. But then again, it really, I guess for me, it really depends on how you mean by objective. If I want every fact they state to be a fact, then yes, I would like, I would like that they would be able to source everything they say as strongly as possible. And it's, that's getting less and less. And I don't want a Twitter comment as a source. I don't want, I think that's interesting thing we're seeing with new media is that it's so often they'll, they'll cite Twitter. Never cite Twitter. I don't care. There's no reason you should ever have to cite Twitter. Even if it's like, how are people feeling about, feeling about this? I don't care. Don't, if I wanted to go on Twitter, I would go on Twitter. I don't need Twitter, Twitter on my the, TV. Twitter is the only worse source of information than Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh, well, YouTube <laughs> comments, I think, are the absolute worst source. Of, and it uh, goes, goes up from there. <laughs> but I think if you're using objective straight in that sort of sense of, can you cite this? Uh, then yes, that'd be great. But I don't want, and I don't think it's useful to have newspapers like newspapers will need to sell copy and newspapers do need and you if environmental stories do need to get out there you need to have a story you need to have a face i think a lot of the problem ends up being when you get too you get too involved in trying to find a way to humanize the issue or something you can sort of lose yourself a little bit in that like oh this person's saying this and you get quotes from the person sort of to you know to humanize it but then of course the quotes necessarily might be wrong and then you started publishing it so i think you have to walk a line there but i understand wanting to make news stories interesting and so I really support the idea that please be able to cite your facts, but I understand you need to make it interesting. If you, I don't mind being biased. I don't mind reading biased sources as long as the person owns up to it first. And that actually, that perfectly segues to what my answer was going to be, mm. which is that, uh, again, when you're sort of saying, answering any simple question like this, you sort of have to define your terms. And so in, in my case, within journalism, what I see as the definition of objectivity is not to be bias-free, because it's impossible to do so, mm -hmm. uh, but is to clearly delineate the difference between facts and your opinions. And that's what objectivity is, because I don't think there is a way to... There's no such thing as unbiased facts, mm. because the only way to, to have an unbiased fact is to have it within context, and then it's not a fact, then it's an, an essay, it's, then it's a dissertation, right? So so facts, in the sense of journalism, are are almost by definition incomplete, Mm -hmm. And they have to be strung together by thought. And that thought is going to be imposed with an, a source of bias. Mm. So in the, in the purest sense, objectivity is impossible. So in a practical sense, objectivity to me just means delineating that difference. Uh, and that's, you know, between your opinions and the facts that you're building those opinions from. And I think that that is quickly going out the window. Uh, that is not something that we see anymore. Um, and it's something that's vitally important and something that as a student you learn. You need mm -hmm. to be able to, in a properly argued paper, you need to be able to identify the highest areas of criticism of your own point of view and then address them. Mm -hmm. That is never, ever, ever done in the mainstream media. It's hardly mm -hmm. ever done in any media. Yeah. And it's it's the the way you can 
use your own judgment to apply it to something that someone else has written about a topic you may not be informed about mm-hmm. is being able to agree on what the facts are and then see if their opinion on what the perspective of those facts should be. You agree with them, you disagree with them, where you agree and where you disagree. Uh, and those sorts of that nuance can be brought into it. But that's not done so people can't do that. Yeah. So I think in the sense that, yes, it should be, and it um, it almost, in a way, can't be, and definitely in practice never is. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, two quick points and then I'll throw it back to you, Nicole. Sure. Uh, one is that, uh, we've talked about this a ton already, is the idea of the value of the narrative. And how facts are useless without a narrative to some extent. So objectivity is useless unless you really have a way to sort of tie it together. Mm-hmm. Really, every sort of every story you're leaving 99% of the world out of it. Mm-hmm. And so you can be 100% objective, or, which is objectively true, but is at the same time, in my eyes, at least lying to you. Mm-hmm. You can say yeah. like, look at the oil industry; it, it employs hundreds and thousands of people. There, it is 97% of Alberta's economy. That's not actually a fact, but the other point is, is that you can say all these things that are objectively yeah. true facts while still, because of what you're leaving out of it, you're not lying, yes, but you're exactly. not right either. Selective, mm-hmm. selective truth, as my mom used to call it. Can I, can I jump in? For yeah, go for it. I'm, uh, just, this relates very, very much to probably the most single, most useful lesson I ever had mm. uh, from a non-environmental class here at mm. U of T. And it was actually from my geograph- uh, geographical information systems, GIS. Uh, the short version of that is that GIS is the type of program you would use to construct something like Google Maps. Mm. So uh, anything where you have a geolocation, so any location, mm. and any piece of data, when you combine those two, that's GIS, just mm. to give people a very quick understanding. So Susie is a data point. Tim Hortons is a location point. If Susie is at Tim Hortons, you now have geographical information data mm. to give people an idea. So one of the things that they bring up in GIS, though, is uh, during the initial lessons, during the very during the first year university courses, they talk to you just about sort of the history of cartography and and maps and how maps are used. And one of the most critical lessons, which I I vividly remember to this day, was brought up was that one of the main books that was discussed there was a book called How to Lie with Maps. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was phrased that way was very intentional, because you cannot represent a 3D reality on a 2D piece of paper. You have to make some adjustments. Now there are a variety of ways to do that. But it's like the idea within quantum mechanics, where you can you can assess speed of a, of a particle, but not its location. Or you can assess its location, but not its speed. You can't mm-hmm. do both at the same time. In the same way, you can have equal area maps or equal uh, shape maps. Uh, I'm f- he's going to kill me, my teacher, because I'm forgetting all the terms. <laughs> uh, but you can't do everything. So, And that's what an article is. Right. An article is a map. Yeah. It's a 2D impersonation of a 3D reality. Mm. And you cannot ever get a complete idea into that article. Mm. So it's about how you lie with it. It's about how to be as, as if your intention is to be, is to be as least deceiving as possible. Mm. You can construct it in the most appropriate fashion yeah. to display those. Or if you want to be deceiving, you can construct it in a different mm-hmm. way. But there are, is no article which is a complete subject or a complete truth in and of itself. And that's why I thought that lesson was so good. It's not about how you, it's not about whether or not you're lying as a journalist. Mm-hmm. It's about whether you're reducing your deception by the context of what your information is. And th- and I think it's a really critical point for everybody to understand is that no article is ever 100% true. It can't mm-hmm. be by definition. And so it's about how truthful on that gray area scale and you can design it to be one or the other. But it's a, it's a very, very critical sort of understanding of of sort of just how to read news, just how to accept information at a basic, basic level that I don't think very many people make that Absolutely. distinction. 
Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, the last thing I was going to mention before we throw it back to you was the idea of that really one of the most interesting things I got out of my philosophy degree was the idea of writing papers where you had to write, all right, this is what I think, and here's every argument against it possible. And I think to flip on from that to the, the maps idea is really what you, when you state your biases, what you're doing is you're adding that heading to the map. You know, there's a map, you know, you have your article, which is a map. Adding your bias in there is saying, this map looks at area. This is what this map doesn't do correctly. Exactly. But this is yeah. still a good map. And that's all, and as soon as you have that, then you're totally fine. You've explained why the map, how the map is lying to the person. They can now mm -hmm. use it for the usefulness without being deceived at all. Or, or they can that's look at it, and before even having to read it, r assess whether or not the information is constructed in a way that might even be useful for what you want to use it exactly, to. Exactly, yeah. If you're trying to assess Starbucks locations, a map mm -hmm. of Tim Hortons locations isn't going to be helpful. Mm. That information is on its basis, so you can see from the title that it's not useful. Yeah. Right? And and that's some, that's very much what you're identifying. We've been talking far too long. <laughs> yes. Please go back. Um, so, and that's exactly one of the points that I was trying to get through my workshop, is that I'm not saying that mainstream media is bad and doesn't know what they're doing when it comes to writing environmental news articles, but oh. you need to, like, they're, they are saying, they're, they're stating facts that might be true, mm -hmm. um, but you need to realize that they're probably leaving out a lot of other pieces of information mm -hmm. voluntarily. Yeah. And so what the green student tries to do is I'll, I, I would get articles in all the time where they would look at one side of the issue and I would ask for them to, even if like they were against it, you know, like views, opinions, whatever, you try to leave the opinions out at first. Mm. You can state your opinion if you want, but make sure that you're saying that you're stating your opinion, mm. but also to look at the other side of the issue. Because mm. we did, ha I did have one story um, where it was a great story about um, the immensity of the problem with the oil sands, and it was a great article. And then uh, a bio um, biotechnology student uh, <laughs> commented on it, and she was talking about all the technological innovations that are coming through to make the extraction process um, a lot more efficient. Mm. So it was really interesting to see that dynamic of, you know, there is another side to the issue that you should consider. It doesn't mean that it's a solution to the entire problem, but... It's interesting to to have that there as well. When you, and when you're writing about public things where you're trying to affect public opinion, the thing you have to take into account that is a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction as the author of that original article would go, I'm trying to fight for the environment. I've decided the oil sands are bad. Mm -hmm. You're presenting information that, while valid, makes my point less clear, right? That's right. challenging my point, even if it's not a, 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 an actual threat to it. Mm -hmm. It's a data point that doesn't fit with the narrative. And yeah. so people's reaction will be to react negatively to that comment, even though it might have been completely true exactly. and completely valid. Yeah. Uh, and I, that's just a natural human reaction, right? But it's something mm -hmm. that it, that's how people receive that. And I think maybe that plays into a little bit about why people overemphasize their headlines and stuff like that, is yes. that they're looking for that to, sort of to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. Then unfortunately, it shoots you in the foot once one person who actually knows what they're talking about shoots a hole in your article. Immediately, yeah. everyone who didn't want to agree with that now just tosses out the whole article. They don't, mm -hmm. someone who's ideologically opposed to be, or sorry, ide ideologically for oil development and would be a, naturally opposed to the point of the original article. Right. Now that they found one point, well, that one thing isn't true and someone who knows what they're talking about has put a hole in it, so I stop reading. It's not like they read it and go, well, you've made some really good arguments except for that one point where, you know, I would tend to agree with someone else. It's, oh, good, this is now article is, is clearly biased and yep. I'm going to discard all the information. It's very dangerous. Which mm -hmm. is, you know, the value of labeling your biases at the beginning again. It protects you from that. You're like, you still can't lie. <laughs> no matter how many times you say, I'm really biased in this issue, you still can't lie. Because as soon as you lie, you're right. But we'll get back to Nicole. So, so talking about narrative, though, what I would have added to that article to deal with that would mm -hmm. have been simply to state at the beginning, 
there are there's an entire other argument as to regardless as to whether or not the immediacy of the technological things can be fixed Absolutely. there are larger reasons to get off of oil yeah. you don't even have to get into an argument for them you yeah. just have to address them it and, takes one and sentence. she did she she decided to go through with um the the, the dependency issue we're all dependent on oil mm. no matter how much we like like we try to say that we're not we plastics like everything it's it's in all of the products that we use mm. so it's a huge challenge that yeah. we can't you know there's 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 so many different parts of that system that need to change. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to bring up was the decline in quality of environmental journalism since it became its own area of news uh, in the 1980s and how um, with the dismantling of environmental news report teams um, such as the New York Times, how that's really affected uh, environmental media and the way that the public perceives it. One thing is that there's a lot less exposure through mainstream media. And the other thing is, oh, and that basically environmental news is a very niche area now. Mm. So unless you're, you're already interested in reading about those topics, you're probably not going to go out of your way to do that. Yeah. And so sensationalism has become a huge thing because if you're, if you have eye catching headlines, chances are you'll be able to catch somebody who wouldn't typically read that sort of thing. Yeah. If I could jump in quickly as an example of that exact sort of thing happening, which was sort of brought up a bit by Kevin Farmer on the on the actual radio show, was that I was watching CBC a couple days after Typhoon Haiyan, and they had a story about it. Obviously, it was the biggest news story. And I found it so interesting that news stations have a way they go about talking about these issues. And the first thing they do, the first couple of days, it's look at the devastation. And then once the devastation is done, then it's like, look at the relief efforts. And when relief efforts is done, then they, but they, they still they're talking about. Then they get into like, all right, how to make this personal to people? And there's this, there's this story that every single disaster gets, which is let's find some people from Toronto, because Toronto has everybody who got, who know people who were affected, and that's how we'll tell a story. Mm -hmm. And never once was there a climate change talk about this. The CBC, like maybe they had one eventually, but what all I saw was let's personalize it by saying, look, there are Filipino people in Toronto and in Canada, and they send money back to these people who are now devastated. Mm -hmm. And that's the main story that they that's where they get it to connect. They don't say things like, you know, all the stuff we're doing, this is kind of a problem. Or even then make the connection that's so easy to one of the most powerful speeches I've seen in the last couple of weeks was the Filipino delegate to COP nineteen. If anyone hasn't seen that, check it out. He gives about a 10-minute talk at his opening address in which he says, basically, we were here last year saying we just got hit by one of the worst storms ever, and it was terrible. It's even some climate change. Never in my life did I think the next year I would be coming and saying an absolute worst storm has hit, devastated it. He's fasting because it was his hometown that got hit, his hometown, mm -hmm. and he just received a call from his brother saying he was safe. It was an absolutely unbelievable story and it's such a personal story and no one covered it i saw it because of the because i have a bunch of facebook friends who care about the environment and sort of i'm in an environmental sort of circle mm -hmm. but it was not a national story at all it was maybe a third or fourth or fifth story on every single thing. it was cop 19 was entirely ignored yeah uh and it's not for the lack of actual stories there being like how Taylor made is a story of a guy going on a fast to for his just hit with hurricane home village for 13 days because of climate change. It's like they gift wrapped mainstream media to talk about climate change and they didn't. And so, like, what's it going to take? I don't know. But sorry, that was an example of how mainstream media environmental news is being worse. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Another thing that I wanted to address uh, in my workshop was looking at this whole sensationalism piece hmm. and looking at um, one example is there is there's this article that's been going around on my Facebook newsfeed that I've been seeing called 10 Foods Experts Refuse to Eat. I don't know if you've seen that one. <laughs> I've seen about 10,000 with almost identical headlines. I, I, yeah. really, I, I really love the word experts. Yes. Like experts. <laughs> who are these experts? Who, it's very similar to like, you know, they don't do this. It's the same they. It's that exact same sort of thing. But should I continue? Yeah. Um, and so one of those one of those stories was about Greek yogurt mm. and how Greek yogurt is a half a super tanker per year toxic waste problem. And so I read that article and... I grew up in in a village <laughs> surrounded by many farms. Mm. So I have a bit of knowledge of, you know, production and that type of thing. Um, so I was reading this article and they're talking about the amount of waste that, because Greek yogurt is this huge food fad now, right? <laughs> it's everywhere. Mm. And so, like, people only eat Greek yogurt now. Regular <laughs> is, yogurt? Is there... Psh, no. So, um, anyways, they're talking about how there's, like, massive amounts of toxic waste and they don't know what to do with it and that... You know, they might be throwing it if, if they, it's so acidic that if they throw it into lakes, like they'll kill all the wildlife. Hmm. And I was like, okay, well, are they actually, are they doing that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it never specifies. So anyways, I used this as a case study for my hmm. workshop. Um, and I got two, two groups within the workshop. One was doing a scenario where they only got all the scare articles and they had to write their own for, um, a national online news publication. And the other group was writing for the green student and they got a bunch of, uh, journal articles and, um, different areas where they were researching ways to use technology to, um, recycle that waste. Mm. And I mean, they can just throw it into fertilizers. Yeah. It's really not a huge issue, but they're making it sound like it is. And so that got passed around. Mm. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make actually, unfortunately, my, my final jump in here because due to some technical errors, we had to push back timing and actually I have to, I have to run to my other job. Uh, so I'm gonna make one because I'm, I'm, people who are used to listening to the podcast know that it's almost impossible to get me to stop talking. So I figured if I just sort of <laughs> made a graceful exit that people would notice where's been, you know, we haven't, we haven't heard Darren rent for 10 minutes in, in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Recently. Concerning. So my final comment before I have to step out and I'll let you guys finish the, uh, the conversation was just around, uh, sort of the problem of numbers in in the sense of which I think is with a little bit what you're identifying there, which is that they just as a species, we don't naturally have a very good sort of concept of large numbers. And so when we're talking about like global food systems, saying that we have half a tanker of anything sounds really big. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's half a tanker of dust in this building that we're in. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't it's, matter. It, you're putting it in a unless unless you relate it to something else to give you a reference point. I can make anything sound terrible or really good depending on the thing by which you put it in. You know, if we said there was half or a tanker of smiles, like uh, anything, I mean, you can make a hundred, you can make a hundred stupid things, but like, so unless we knew what the average sort of like waste was, like mm -hmm. is yogurt processing a something that naturally produces biohazardous materials? Well, That's also, one question. Yeah. It, what are those materials mm -hmm. is another question. What is the impact of those materials is another question. Is How that something we can affect and still make yogurt? Or are we talking about the validity of yogurt as a commercial food product is another question. There's mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of things that you need to ask to have any relevance for that story whatsoever, or it's essentially useless. Absolutely. Uh, and that's something that we sort of bring up all the time on, on the, the end of our the radio program, which is that I'll bring out sort of news items, and frequently uh, Stefan's response has been, yeah, I don't care. 
<laughs> because it's because of the simple like the, it, you can't tell it's it's not that there's no good information in the story you can say with certainty it's that there's no way to tell if the information is useful or not because exactly. of the way that it's been presented uh mm -hmm. with that i will make my graceful uh my graceful slip out unfortunately but uh thank you very much for joining us and and uh, have a good conversation so do you have another question or uh yeah i want to bring up the whole emergence of social media and mm. how we are all very very social or our generation especially mm. is is all over that i mean social media has been seen as an advantage and as a disadvantage as an effective tool mm. as an ineffective tool mm. that you're totally wasting your time on so what what do you think uh, in the realm of environmental news um and awareness and activism I think it actually can be a very good tool. I don't watch a lot of mainstream news. I don't go on CNN.com. I don't go on CBC.com. I don't watch a lot of TV because I don't have cable, so I can't watch a lot of news. I find that if you have the right Facebook friends who post the right things or you follow the right people on Twitter, you can get all the news you need now without ever going actually to the main website. You can ignore a lot of the fluff by following the right people. Mm -hmm. So I think it can be used as a very good tool. It can, be, it can be used in many other negative ways, and you often see a lot of smear campaigns, which will happen, you know, and because of the fact that it's so easy to share things, you'll often get things that are poor that get shared. Yeah. Um, for example, there's, a, there's an article going around which is called, you know, you won't hear an ad about Coke for a while because it's, and the reason why is great. And it's all these people being really stoked about Coke because it's uh, basically the idea, I think, is that they're spending some of their ad budget to give some money somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like, and that's that's factually true. So go back to your objectivity. It is factually, yeah. objectively correct. But it completely ignores the fact that you know Coke is basically ruining water rights in India. They're buying up water, and yeah. people are actually going thirsty because they because of Coke and the way they're they're operating. And you know Coke owns Nestle, and Nestle has very 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 bad track record on water rights issues to the extent where their CEO was once quoted. It, with, it, with video, so it's a video of him mm -hmm. saying that water, water should be privatized and that water Absolutely. should not be a right. Yeah. And it's like, these are not, I don't care how much Coke isn't spending on advertising and where they're putting it, it's still not something to, su to support. And so like, basically, social media sites are as useful as you allow them to be. If you follow the right mm -hmm. people, you get a lot of good information, you follow all the wrong people, you get a lot of bad information. And it can be an echo chamber either way. So yeah. I think it's a tool, I think, is what it is, but more than necessarily a positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And one of the things that the green student tries to do is um, get people to understand that uh, media liter literacy is really important because when you have that knowledge, you're able to act upon it and influence the people around you. Mm -hmm. And so I have a quote here from um, a Pew Research survey, which found that um, nearly 72% of adults um, get their news from friends and family by either having someone talk to them or through social media. Hmm. And so that's interesting because um, almost 77% will follow the links to full news stories that you post on Facebook. Right. Which is very, very interesting. Yeah. So it's a great way to influence your inner, inner circle of peers as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're putting out information like 10, 10 foods that experts won't eat, <laughs> then look at how much, and, and your family reads that, and your friends read that, and then it's like, yeah everybody gets a whole bunch of information that's not really true. Yeah, I think so. there's... But as you had a great... Uh, for people who don't know, because you wouldn't know, because we'll tell you right now, we actually had, as Darren mentioned, a technical issue in which we recorded this uh, entire podcast for about 35 minutes before the computer exploded. So we're hoping to get that information. We'll post it up again. But because of that, I know some of the talking points you already have. Yeah. And I would love to get to the one you have about the environment and the royal baby. Oh, yes. 
Um, so, uh, one of the questions that caught everyone in my workshop off guard was, what does environmental news and the royal baby have in common? And so I got some interesting answers from people, <laughs> none of them which were right. right. Oh, really? Oh, man. <laughs> but hilarious, right, naturally. <laughs> nonetheless. And, um, so there, there's two, there's two reasons why, uh, there's two common things. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is that, Environmental news and celebrity news gets the same amount of coverage in mainstream media. Which is still surprising to me. I know there's there's two pages at the back of every metro in Toronto, the metro's newspaper in Toronto, which is just celebrity news. Mm-hmm. If the last two pages of every metro were environment news, I would be blown away. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm actually kind of happy that that's actually, that, that that is true, the fact that environment news gets that much attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sorry, you continue. And so the second thing is that we all know how credible tabloids are. Mm. The truth all the time, <laughs> always. Yeah, that's, I'm pretty sure Kim Kardashian has seven children and three illegitimate marriages. So. Yeah, I read about that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of, a few weeks before the royal baby was born, one of the UK tabloids put out, um, the, a specific week that they thought that the prince was going to be born. And so every other tabloid followed after that, mm. saying the exact same thing. So they were all speculating that he was going to be born during this week, and it was a load of crap. Mm. Like, they had no idea. Were they right, Bangers? Do you know? I didn't follow up on that. Ah, it would be funny if they were right. I'm, yeah. guessing, I'm guessing they weren't, given just a shot in the dark. But it would be really <laughs> funny if they actually were, if they were dead on. And so um, the, the sad part about this is that even a lot of environmental news publications, um, especially if they're extremely right-wing or left-wing and they have certain viewpoints, mm-hmm. um, they're more likely to present um, facts or speculations or claims that they don't really have anything to back it up with. Mm-hmm. But they're going to put it out there because that's what they want you to think. Right. And so you got you have to be careful with that. Yeah. And so that's where the whole sensational Im- sensationalism issue comes into play Mm. and it's like how far can you go and tread that line without you know hurting your credibility right yeah i think that's i think that's a question that newspapers probably deal with all the time yeah if you say something crazy you'll get a bunch of views right away Mm -hmm. and then if you're wrong that could just kill you and i think environmentalists really have to worry about that what that shows Mm -hmm. because if you come out and are saying the earth will end on january 27th 2046, when the Earth integrity temperature will be X, Y, Z, and it doesn't happen, even if one year later Armageddon does happen, you're still discredited. You're wrong, mm-hmm. and that's all you and that's all you can say is that that's it. The idea of sensationalism and where to go and when to use it and how to use it is a conversation that Darren and I've had multiple times. Mm-hmm. It goes back to this Grist article that actually that we have we talked about many 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 times, which basically said that if you're under the age of 27, oh yes, that I've, one, I have seen that one. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, if you're to quickly explain, if the article basically said if you're under the age of 27, you've never experienced a colder than average month. And in the first line of the article, it did say, "Psych, we're lying." Because in reality, it's global average temperatures, so everyone in mm-hmm. individual places have, always, have already experienced hot, warmer temperatures, including, I think, when I wrote an article on this, I did some research, and it was like, the day it was published, around the day it was published, Sweden was in, no, was Sweden or Norway? Sweden or Norway was in the process of having one of the warmest Junes ever. Okay. And so it's like, a Swedish baby has succeeded at what you said was impossible for any under 27. And that was sort of my tradition of it. And I understand the other side is like, no, like this is a scary fact. The fact that the Earth has been warmer than average times for 27 years consecutively mm-hmm. is scary. Yeah. But to word it the way they did allowed someone to read it and then ignore it. And I think that's the sensationalism speaks to is that kind of concern. Yeah. Um, here's another interesting question. Right. Uh, 
So in the early 80s, Time put out an issue. You know how they have the Person of the Year yeah. issue every year? Mm. So they put out Planet of the Year, one <laughs> of the years. And guess who the Planet of the Year was? was Earth. Uh, <laughs> ah, yes. And so um, so they had all these articles in there about, um, you know, the emergence of all these massive environmental issues. And so the editors and the writers for that issue mm. suggested a lot of solutions to the problem. Mm. And so they may not have been complete experts on it. Um, I mean, they did have obviously like scientific sources and that mm. sort of thing. But do you think that it's it's wrong for reporters and editors to suggest solutions to problems that they perceive, mm. but may uh, not, you know, understand? Have spent their lifetime researching. Right. Uh, no, I think I think it's totally valid, and I I really I think that's what people need to be doing. Really. Mm -hmm. I really think that's a, one of the problems we have in society today is that we all bow down to the experts. If experts don't eat these eight things, I'm not eating those eight things because the experts don't. Yeah. And I, people so often defer to experts. And the experts are ones who Absolutely. got us in the problem in the first place. You know, experts were like, this is how to run our economy the most efficiently. Experts were like, this is how to extract oil the most efficiently. We sort of bow down to them, but Sims, they're the ones who, who got us here. And if everyone sort of continues this idea of, all right, we'll wait until experts figure this out, it it disempowers them 100%. Because yep. we, we need you to do small things, too. By saying, by always deferring to the experts, it's abdicating yourself of any responsibility. And the fact is, as we said earlier, oil's in everything. We all have some responsibility, and we can't abdicate that responsibility without disempowering ourselves. And I think mm -hmm. what we really need, because of the, the, the amount of moneyed interest we're, that we're facing, is every single person to feel empowered. Yeah. And, and to, I, so I really think, honestly, I, if someone random wants to comment on this issue and say, this is how I'm going to solve all your problems, great. I want to hear every single person in the world's issue, because at least they're thinking about it. And they've, yeah. they've at least engaged the issue. That's uh, a great point. Do you, yeah. do you think we should defer to experts, or do you think we should go to, uh, um, I, it's a, it's a tough question. I, I, I put that in my workshop and I was like, man, I don't even know if I can answer this right. question right now. But I, it would be, it was interesting to see what others had to say about it. And I mean, I, I don't think that you necessarily have to be an expert on it to, you know, suggest solutions to the problem. Uh, but I, there, there's an, a certain amount of research that has to be done, a level of, you know, going through the facts and, mm -hmm you know, understanding the problem from a system's perspective. Right. And that's what a lot of people don't do. Mm. They they see one side of the issue and kind of just like, oh my God, like this is happening, but then they don't consider the other side of it. Right. Yeah, I think it's very, I think that's I think that's partially actually what gets me about small issues. The mm -hmm. people who really really big recycling boosters, really big other issues, that sort of that sort of thing. Is that I get it, and I support it. But at the same time, I'm like, let's talk about the system, though, because the most common example uh, of describing people doing things about uh, climate change is we're on the Titanic and we're and we're hitting, you know, we've hit an iceberg and now we're going under. Mm -hmm. And and the most common thing Darren always says is that a lot of people are moving around the deck chairs of the on the yeah. Titanic. I would say that the people who are really focusing on small, really really small scale issues, and I think it is important and they should be doing it. If, they, if that's their only thing, and if they think like you recycle, you'll solve climate change, you're just taking a little teacup and you're just dipping out some of the some of the freezing water. You're doing a little more than range a range of deck chairs. So you're at least getting some water off the Titanic. Yeah. But it's not to scale of the problem. Mm hmm But so we have about now seven minutes. He sort of gave me a ten right. minute warning about three minutes ago. So we <laughs> so we're running out of time a little bit. Any? We'll give you some final thoughts, uh, and then we'll sort of ask our audience for some comments about different things, and then we'll close it from there. Sure. Um, so with this whole issue of social and um, uh, 
basically, you know, catering to a society with shorter attention spans and that sort of thing. Do you think that the public is ultimately to blame um, for the way that uh, the media or mainstream media handles complex environmental issues? Because you can't really write um, the history of climate change in 500 words. Right. So, like, how, how do you address that? And, like, are we to blame? Mm. I don't think we are. I really, I think we're to blame in many, many ways. I think the way the media interacts with climate change comes largely from the fact that people who go through journalist school have a sort of in-depth sets of how to talk about things. And the people who sort of end up running media companies have been there for a while because media, there's yeah. less and less jobs in for media. And you're seeing some great places more and more, some sort of smaller independent new media sources that are filling the role of talking about climate change in a real way. Mm -hmm. So I think this, I don't think you can really blame humanity. Like, there's definitely some, re the reason why I'm shocked that celebrities get, get same entertainment as environment stories is because I know way more people who will talk openly about what celebrities are doing and to compared to people I know who, who environment things are doing mm -hmm. because that's a more of a connecting kind of thing. Yeah. Really, I think it's, and the media's failing for not really understanding how to talk about the environment. I think okay. we'll need to see more and more, and you get some who are very good at it. George Mann, we had someone who is very good at sort of talking about this kind of stuff. Uh, but really, the media is not taking the need that exists. I think they're, they're abdicating it because it's not what they understand is important for them, which it was true in the past. So they're sort of letting it go. Mm -hmm. uh, so I don't think we can be totally blamed for that. Um, sorry, any last thoughts and then we'll, we'll close up. Um, how did you close, how did you close your, uh, your talk? Uh, so at the very end, we had the, the exercise where there was two different scenarios. And so at the end, both groups had to present to each other um, the format and uh, the, the key points that were going to be in their articles. And so one did like a video and the other one um, had this massive diagram on, on this chalkboard. And so they went through and um, the one group realized that they didn't have all the information that the other group did. Mm. And they were like, oh, and but when I was going through, uh, when I was checking in on each group when they were working on it, it was interesting because they were asking those questions. Mm. So the, the critical thinking was already there. And um, and the other group who um, had all this all this great information were trying to find ways to cut it down and, <laughs> you know, make it more, uh, also make it interesting right, for yeah. people that they'll actually pay attention to it, mm. right? Um, but then also the creativity on the other side of them trying to make the issue more hard-hitting than mm. the information that they were lacking. Right. So. so generally positive experience. Yes. Excellent. Yes, it was great. Thank you so much for being on. Anyone who Thanks has any... Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll have you again. But largely, if you have any comments about this whole issue, if you have any questions for Nicole, put them in the comment section. We'll send them to her, uh, and then either when we'll get them addressed in some sort of way. If you were at the conference and you have someone you were, you really liked and you want us to try to get them on the show, let us know. We'll, we can always ask. Mm -hmm. It's worth a shot. Uh, so thank you so much, Nicole. And here is, what was the name of the band? Royxop. To play us out. I could hear them howling from afar. I saw them rush into your car. 